I was hoping there'd be fewer people today because of Thanksgiving. This place is full. Isn't it great to be a part of a church where bald guys can wear their hats? Yeah. All right, let's pray. Uh, God, as we open up your word, we pray you'd speak to us. We pray you'd comfort us. We pray you'd encourage us. God, we pray you'd motivate us and excite us to live for you, to be set on fire for you, God. Fill us with your Holy Spirit today, God. Fill us with faith and exuberance to live out a bold Christian life for you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's been a long time since I've done this. I'm, I'm going to be honest, I'm very nervous. Um, in case any of you are new here, my name is Johnny, and uh, I'm one of the elders. Rory's uh, enjoying a nice break, and somehow I got suckered into being up here. <laughs> and we are in Romans uh, 7, verse uh, 13, we're going to go through 8, uh, 2, just a little... It's a little peek at chapter 8 to finish off. So I'm going to read the entire passage first, and then we'll kind of go through it as well. So here we go. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what am I doing? I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, That is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with... The mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with flesh, with the flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. All right, so as we, as we unpack this passage today, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask, I think I have about five questions. When I, re, when I teach, I usually try to ask a few questions. And so um, I'm going to ask, who is this divided man? Uh, I'm going to ask, what is to be learned from the fact that Christians have indwelling sin? I'm going to ask... Uh, no Christian lives in continual victory. What would a church that denied this be like? I'm going to ask, is the Christian life the defeated life of Romans 7? And then I'm going to ask, what variables affect our sanctification? Okay, so that's a lot. But um, that's what we're going to get into in this text. And so the first, uh, you know, I knew I was going to teach this passage and um, I've been to Bible college. I don't know if you guys know that. Two classes. <laughs> Romans. The, the one thing I'm 
pseudo-qualified to teach on is Romans. I took the Romans class at uh, the School of Ministry, the one-year Bible college. I took one class at the one-year Bible college, two classes. And I took a class on the Holy Spirit. And uh, so the one, the one book of the Bible I studied in depth was the book of Romans. And so um, this was in Corvallis about 17 years ago. And so uh, I knew this passage, there's a debate over whether Paul is talking about himself from verses 13 to 25 before Christ or after becoming a Christian. So when Paul says things like, uh, I do the things I don't want to do, it's no longer I that do them, but sin that dwells in me, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this? Is this Paul the Christian? Paul, the super missionary saying these things, or is this, uh, Paul before Christ? And so I knew I was going to have to face that, uh, controversy again when I studied this text. And I was actually surprised to find very few, uh, the, the book that we used when I was in Bible college, the guy, um, he was very strong on the opinion that this was not, um, Paul, the Christian. But as I, as I went and really looked at it for myself, I came to a pretty strong conclusion. I think this is Paul the Christian. And um, so I'm going to give you four reasons. I think this is Paul the Christian. Now, let me just read this text to you again. Has then what is good become death to me? Paul, in in the first half of seven, as Rory went through uh, last week, is talking about the law. And that, you know, the law... Actually, let me back up one step. Before we get into this text, I want to give you three vocabulary words, okay? Because we're going to see these words a whole bunch, okay? And, and so I got slides for each one. This is me, the, the middle school teacher right now, uh, slowing it down for the middle schoolers who have to stay in the room, okay? Um, we have the word law, or sorry, what are my three words? Yeah, there it is. We have the word law, okay? Paul uses the word law a whole bunch. And Paul actually uses this word in like three different ways, like 17 times in this text. And so this word in particular can get very confusing. Uh, Paul uses the word law to describe God's rules. Okay. He tends to talk about the 10 commandments or just the old Testament in general. And that's primarily what the first half of seven was about, but he can also talk about sort of, I find this law in myself, you know, and so just sort of this internal awareness uh, our conscience. And then Paul can also use the word law just as a general principle, like, oh, you know, Newton's laws of, of motion, you know, like there are these rules in nature that seem to exist, right? So he uses the word law a whole bunch in this passage. And then he uses the flesh. And um, he also uses the word carnal, you know, and if you've ever been to Tony's Tacos, carne asada, right? It's the same word. It means meat. It literally means meat, the flesh, your, your physical body. And, um, Paul tends to use this word to mean our sinful nature. And so that's a pretty easy one. You can think of the flesh as, as your sinful nature. And then Paul uses the word spirit and he tends to use the word spirit to talk about like, sort of like not just the Holy spirit, but also our internal spirit that the Holy spirit dwells with that is made alive and, and is going to live forever. And there's, there's sort of this battle between the flesh and the spirit. Okay. And so those three words, flesh, spirit, uh, law. Now let's get into the text really quick here and just, I'm going to go three, uh, sorry, I'm going to read 13 through 15 really quick. So he's talking about the law and he says, has then what is good become death to me? Has this law become death to me? Uh, certainly not. You know, Paul's making the case here, the law is good, but sin, that it might be appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, the law, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Like sin has this terrible power to take something good and make it feel evil to me. Isn't that interesting? Like when you give your children rules, they think your rules are evil. And it's like, actually, these rules are like a mirror and they're showing you there's an evil thing in you. Um, And verse 14, for we know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. I am carne asada. I am meat. I am flesh. I have a sinful nature. And I am, Paul, Paul makes a case here, I'm sold under sin. I'm a slave to sin. For what I am doing, look at, look at how sinful I am. For what I am doing 
I do not understand. You know, it's sort of like when you have kids, what, why'd you do that? You know, there's a lot of dumb things I did when I was a kid, you know, like I was, you know, and your parents would, why'd you do that? I don't know. I just, why, why are you jumping off the roof right now? I don't, I don't know. I'm just a 12 year old boy. I just want to see how high I could jump off the roof, you know? And, and it's the same thing with our sinful nature. Why am I doing this sinful thing that I hate? I don't understand for what I want to do. I don't do that thing. Uh, but what I hate, the thing that I hate, that I do. Okay. And, and now I want to get into this a little bit because I, I want to, I want to let you know, I'm going to take the approach from this text that this is actually not that it can't also be Paul, the pre-Christian, but I don't think this is Paul, the pre-Christian. I think this is Paul, the Christian. And let me give you four reasons why. Uh, and I'm going to say this text is describing those moments, those seasons, those times when sin gets the upper hand and we are temporarily defeated as Christians. And, and, um, I listened to nine or 12 arguments from various people about this. Here are three or four of the best ones. First off, I would say, um, Paul before Christ, when he describes himself, he doesn't describe himself as a tormented man. He doesn't describe himself as someone who's unrighteous and struggling with sin. Paul describes himself before Christ as a Pharisee of Pharisees. You know, he describes himself as the highest caliber Jew and Jews. When you look at Jesus interacting with Jews and Pharisees in particular, uh, in general, there is like, I'm not a sinner, you know, I don't struggle with sin. There is, uh, Paul was a Pharisee. There is this self-righteousness to Pharisees and specifically, I think to Paul that there was no division in, among themselves. No, there was no sin, internal sin struggle. S- sin was something that happened outwardly. I don't murder. I don't lie. You know, I don't steal. Sin was not this internal struggle of covetousness in my heart that Paul was describing in the first half of seven. So Paul, Paul, when he describes himself in other places in the New Testament, describes himself as a very, you know, Pharisee of Pharisee, the most upright, you know, um, Jew there could be. Um, so, so that's one argument. And then I think in general, another argument, only a Christian would have this view that they would say, there's no good thing in my flesh. And there's, there's a lot of ways this, this works out in the text. Um, a lot of arguments can draw out from this, but only a Christian would look at their, their flesh and say, I'm, I'm trying to find this. Uh, in verse 18, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. If Paul's talking about pre-Christian Paul, if he's talking about himself before he's a Christian, and he's, he's reflecting on the way he thought before he was a Christian. I don't think it would have been natural for him to say, yeah, as a Jew, I know that in me, nothing good dwells. Jews didn't have this concept of I'm a wretched sinner. You know, Jews had a very self-righteous view of themselves in in general. And they didn't have this idea to even say that is in my flesh, like as if there was some other component of them that was good. So that's a very Christian idea that that I have my flesh that's evil, but I have the spirit of God in me. That's good. So I think that's a second reason. Um, And then I think, I think this is probably one of the strongest arguments you could make is uh, it's the most natural way to read the text. And, you know, I love how Rory always says, if the first sense makes the most sense, take no other sense lest you end up with nonsense or something to that effect, you know, and um, appreciate the girls helping me out there. Uh, you know, I think of, I think of, this is, this is a little more abstract here, but philosophical, but, you know, we're looking at colleges now for my son. And I think about, it's so strange that um, Harvard and Yale and all these, these schools, some of the first colleges in the nation were once Christian schools. And um, as you become more and more intelligent and you start to live more and more in your mind, I think there's this tendency to get away from the practical, spiritual application of the word. And I'm not, I mean, be careful with that. I'm just, I'm just throwing this out there, but 
you know, when I was first thinking about teaching this passage, I was thinking, you know, even when I was in college, and oh, this doesn't, this isn't, this passage, the guy we read said, this passage is not about the Christian struggle with sin. So it's like, that's kind of defeating to me. You know, when I first heard that, I was like, really? Because I read this passage as a young Christian, and I was so comforted by it. You know, like, yeah, Paul, me too, man, me too. You know, and then to have this, this theologian, Dr. Moo, who wrote our book, I think his last name was Moo. You know, he's like, oh, no, this isn't about your Christian life. This is about pre-Christian Paul. It's just like, oh man, I was really tracking with Paul on this one. You know, now you don't even understand how to read the Bible, kid. You know, it's the same way. Like you go, like you look at these, these really prestigious theologians who spend all this time getting all this knowledge about the Bible and they become almost irrelevant to regular Christian people. You know, and, and I just think, man, this is one of the beautiful things about the Calvary Chapel movement is like, man, just read through the Bible and take it just simply, you know, and like, if you just read this simply to it with a young Christian, this is me, man. And I was really encouraged when I was, when I was uh, studying on this, as you know, John uh, Douglas Moo, who wrote that book that we had in college and he's a Calvinist and I kind of lean that way. And John Piper's a Calvinist. And I went and listened to John Piper on this. And John Piper was the one who had listed out nine arguments why this is Paul the Christian. And I was just like, yeah, John Piper's belief. And John Piper made a solid case why this is Paul the Christian, you know. And, uh, and I thought, this, this one put the nail in the coffin for me. Galatians 5.17 is an exact parallel to where Paul continues to say, he says this twice. He said it in 16 and 20. He says, maybe it's not in 16. But he says twice in here, definitely in 20. I don't know where he says that. Oh, yeah, 20. I do not do what I will to do. And then if you look at Galatians uh, 5.17, 5.17, bring it up. I don't have it written down. He says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. And nobody... When you read this whole passage in context, nobody's arguing about whether or not this is uh, about Christians. And so there is, in the Christian life, there is this struggle between the spirit and the flesh. And so I just, I'm just, after studying this week, I'm just totally convinced. This passage is about the Christian struggle with sin, uh, which I find comforting because I'm a sinner. And even after, I've discovered both through the text of scripture and through my own experience that I'm still a sinner after, after being born again. Okay. So let's keep going. Uh, let's start up in verse 16. Now, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. So Paul's still making his case here. The law is not bad. The law is good, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I think you could take a verse out of context and you could get ri- really weird places with it. Verse 17 would be an example of that. I'm not guilty. It's just the sin in me that did it. And there's a whole branch of heresy called Gnosticism where it's kind of like, do whatever you want with your physical body. It's only your spiritual body that matters, you know? And that verse 17, be, beware of a heresy that only looks at a verse in the Bible by itself. Okay, verse 18, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For... And in, in, the, in the New Living Translation, they actually translate this little phrase, that is in my flesh. They actually translate that in my sinful nature. And so sort of sometimes in the Christian community, we use this phrase, the sinful nature. Okay. And, and so the flesh is the sinful nature. And in that sinful nature, no, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. So I want to will, to, to, to want to do the good things that God wants me to do. It's, it's in there. Some part of me is desiring to do what God wants. But uh, how to perform what is good, I do not find. So there's this part of me that wants to do what God wants. But then I try to do it in my flesh, and I can't achieve it. Uh, verse 19, for the good that I will to do, that I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do that. I practice this man is really beat up inside 
Verse 20. Now, if I, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I'm going to keep going through verse 23. Okay. I find that a law, and it's, this law is not talking about the Old Testament law, but kind of a, a rule that's present. I find then a rule that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. There's some sort of evil nature still stuck in me as a Christian. And I'm going to guess that most of you have discovered this post Christ. There is still an evil nature stuck in me for I delight in the law of God, according to my inward man. And, and I love, Paul uses this phrase, inward man. And I've been studying, I like, I like philosophy a little bit, which I never thought I would say something like that as a young man. But I've been studying philosophy lately. And there's this idea called um, substance dualism. And if you're kind of nerdy, check it out. And uh, substance dualism is a popular uh, view of um, human nature, that human beings have two parts they have a body and they have a soul. And these two things are separate substances and, and, and substance in the, in the truest sense of the word, they are made of different things. And this is, if you read Paul, this is, seems to be the view that Paul had, that, that we have both like a, a, a spiritual component to ourselves and we have a physical component to ourselves. And Paul seems to be separating the two, that we have a physical body and that we have a spiritual body. And, and I think this would be like kind of what everybody already it's always thought, but there's, there's Christian philosophers who really go deep on this stuff. And it's fun to, uh, look into what they have to say. So Paul's basically saying our spirit is good, or there's, a, there's a redeemed portion of us that is our soul or our spirit, but that there, there is this sinful portion of us that is our flesh. And so our spirit desires to glorify God, but our, our flesh is still corrupt. Okay. So my spirit in my inward man that's God. That's Paul's word for, for our spirit delights in the law of God. But I see another law in my members. That's he's talking about members like, you know, your fingers, your hands, your arms. That's my flesh. I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. So in this sense, I think his mind would be part of his spirit and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And so, man, Paul is divided, man. He is struggling. There is internal turmoil in this guy. And so um, I, I wrote another question here after, after kind of looking at that deep struggle Paul is in. And I, and I wrote a few notes down. I wrote, I asked the question, what is to be learned from the fact that Christians have indwelling sin? And I think uh, I wrote a few notes down here. So no Christian lives in continual victory. And um, that sounds like a dangerous thing to even say out loud, doesn't it? But at the same time, the alternative would be a dangerous thing to believe. Because if you were a part of a church that said, our leaders live in continual victory, that'd be a really weird church to be a part of, wouldn't it? Oh, you know, Pastor Rory, he's perfect. He, he attained Christian perfection 17 years ago. Hasn't sinned in 17 years. Watch out. Okay. You're going to have some abuse in that church, I think. Right? Um, so, so, you know, and I actually, I was, I'm going to show you guys some graphs for the math geeks out there later. And uh, I actually found some graphs from, from other points of view where the, the graph literally hits the, the perfect touch of holiness and goes, goes on before heaven. My graph doesn't hit holiness till heaven, but, um, anyway, I think that would be a really dangerous idea to suggest that you could become perfect on earth, that you don't have an, a sinful nature still, and that you, you, you would live in perpetual victory. But at the same time, it's really a good idea to be like, let's go out there today, church, and let's live in victory, right? Amen. Let's do it, you know? So like, be careful what you emphasize, you know, I guess is what I'm saying. Okay. Um, but, but what Paul seems to say here is we battle against a sinful nature. Um, 
And, and let me give you a little more. We're not going to look at chapter eight today, but, but this, you know, this isn't, there aren't chapter breaks in the letter by Paul, right? So let's look at 820. So I think, is it Jonah up there today? I totally was talking to him. Yeah. Thumbs up. Boom. Jonah up there today. So, so 820 and 823. So 820, why, why is it that we have this broken nature? It goes all the way back to creation for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So there was, you know, when Adam and Eve sinned, sin entered the world and it affected the creation. And this brokenness that all of us suffer from isn't ultimately going to be fixed until Romans 8.23. That's your cue, Jonah. Not only that, but we also who have been, uh, who have the first fruits of the spirit, the Holy Spirit living in our spirit, we, we've had this taste of like, there's a better, there's a better way to live than just being subject to sin. We groan within ourselves like, oh, this is the groaning in, in chapter seven. Like I don't do the things that I want to do, but we're eagerly waiting for the redemption of our flesh. Like we're going to get a new body. We're going to have a new heavenly body and it's we're not going to sin anymore you know and it's going to be amazing we're going to live in glory with god with bodies that are incorruptible no longer suffering the effects of the fallen nature amen um but we are currently waiting for that and um and this redemption was was already accomplished, but yet it hasn't been fully accomplished. It's, it's accomplished in stages. Like we're redeemed, but yet the full, uh, the fulfillment, the complete fulfillment of that won't be until the very end. All right, we're going to keep going. I didn't want, I didn't want to end in seven because it's, it's kind of a downer. And so I wanted to get into a couple verses of eight because I don't want to send you off. Well, guys, no Christian lives in continual victory. Get out there and be defeated. So, uh, so we're going to read verse 24 through 8-2. Uh, oh, wretched. So what do you do? What do you do? And, and I said this at the beginning. Um... This text is describing those moments, those seasons, those times when sin gets the upper hand and we are temporarily defeated as Christians. This is not a permanent state. Okay, so let's let's read on. Paul says of this struggle and, you know, I think I think of Paul. I mean, I don't really know, but I'm just speculating here. Paul was talking about coveting. You know, it's funny, you know, I think of like one of the most perfect Christians I know. I really have no idea how perfect this person is. But, you know, I, I think of, I was thinking of Kathy Vaughn. I hope Kathy Vaughn's not in here. She's in like Africa right now, right? Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, you know, who, who are the most self-denying, others-seeking people, you know? It's, it's pe- missionaries who lay down everything, you know, they give up everything to go look out for the needs of others, right? And I was thinking about Kathy Vaughn. I heard Kathy, Kathy Vaughn talking one time about how she struggles with materialism. And I was like, Kathy Vaughn, you live in a hut in Uganda. You don't struggle with materialism, <laughs> you know? It's kind of like Paul here talking about covetousness. Like, man, I do have a tent and a coat. I really struggle with materialism, you know? It's like, you know, but even, even no matter how sanctified God gets a person, there's still that nature that's like, I want that other, I want two coats, you know? And that, I think that's what Paul's going through here. Even though he's, he is, man, Paul is like one of the best Christians that ever lived probably. He's still got a sinful nature though even though he's laid down more than just about anybody else ever has. And so his, his, his struggle was probably covetousness. And then he says in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I have felt that way. 
I don't know about you guys, but I have felt that way. Verse 25. How do you respond to that? How do you respond to, to just failing post-Christ? You know, like before Christ, I was a wretched sinner. I had all this gunk and garbage in my life. Sure. But then Christ saved me and he redeemed me and I came to know the truth and I knew what was right and I wanted, and God changed my heart and he gave me new desires and I, I was like projected into holiness, right? So now it's like, I'm a new creation, baby. I'm redeemed and I'm being sanctified and I've been on this upward trajectory. And then suddenly psh, I have this season of failure and it's like, what is this? This isn't what I was supposed, this isn't the, the good news I heard about of sanctification and, and holiness. And you, you get to this point of failure as a Christian and you, you can't do anything but cry out, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's, I think that's the, Paul's giving us here um, the response that we have to have when we fail. We have to go back to God and we have to say, oh, God, I am a wretched man. You know, what, what's, what's one of our favorite songs as Christians for the last 300 years? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And God, deliver me from this body of death. And then we, we in faith, we know, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Yes, you forgive my sin. Again, how many times someone sins against me, Jesus, how many times should I forgive him? Seven, 70 times seven. He keeps forgiving. So then Paul says, with my mind, I myself serve the law of God. With my mind, which is a component of, of my spirit, I serve the law of God, but my flesh is still subject to sin. So I have to, uh, well, let's, let's keep reading. So Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, because if you're in Christ, you don't have to walk according to the flesh. You don't have to have that sinful nature be the thing that's driving you. You can walk according to the spirit for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Next verse for what the law could not do. And that it was weak through the flesh. Oh, no. I'm done. That's all I get. That's all I get. Verse chapter 8. It's going to be good. Okay. So, um, man, I'm good. I'm about 13 minutes to show you my weird math charts. Just get ready. Okay. Get ready. Okay. Uh... A couple of things I want to say. I love how uh, Paul in verse six, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? Certainly not. Right. And I wrote down a question here. Is the Christian life, the defeated life of Romans seven? Hey, Paul is, is the, so you just described all this struggle with sin here. Is the Christian life, the defeated life of Romans seven? I think Paul would say, certainly not read Romans eight. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And, and then let's see Galatians 5.17 again. I, it's in the middle of a bunch of stuff. So let me just read it to you. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And, I, and this is 16. I say, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's 5.16. So although there is this struggle within, God has not made us to live in continual defeat. Okay? Um, the decisive power of sin to destroy your life has been broken. Bring up uh, Romans 6.22, Jonah. So let me say that again. The decisive power of sin to destroy your life has been broken. We saw that in Romans 6.22. But now having been set free from sin, you've become slaves to God. You have your fruit to holiness and in the end, everlasting life. So sin, sin I think of sin as like a, a nasty gremlin that was on your back. Okay. And now 
when you got saved, you've been set free from that gremlin. You know, Jesus Christ stabbed him in the heart. And now he's just barely hanging on with a couple of talons on your foot. And every once in a while, he grabs on again, and you just got to kick him. Okay, he's still there, but he's barely hanging on. He's just boop, boop, boop. He's about dead. Okay, but every once in a while, he gets a foothold again, you know. And, uh, but the decisive power of sin to destroy your life has been broken. I loved what John Piper said when I was... Uh, studying the Bible holds out a higher hope than to live in this defeated condition. Instead, this text instructs us how we should respond to those moments when sin gets the best of us. Okay. So, uh, I've got a few minutes here and I wanted to finish off on sanctification. So instead, uh, of thinking of this as a permanent state of, of how we ought to live, think of this as, uh, the dip in our, in our moments of sanctification. Okay. And so, uh, this is, this is a little strange maybe for you, but I tend to think of things in graphs. And so, um, so we are a work in progress. Okay. And, um, so I want to show you this, this word, there's a work, there's a word for this in Christianity. The fact that God is improving us over time. Okay. It's called sanctification. And I was kind of like, oh, where, where do you find like a good teaching on sanctification? You know, and I'm just going to cherry pick a couple of verses. So this is kind of not how you're supposed to teach, but this isn't really what the passage is about. It sort of is. So uh, bring up Hebrews 10.10. I think this is uh, really cool. Um, there's a lot of things where it's, it's right now, but it's also not yet. And as I was kind of looking, looking over sanctification, this is one of those because we have been sanctified. So Hebrews 10, 10, by that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. We were, we've already been sanctified guys. Okay. And yet right in that same passage, four verses later, Hebrews 4, uh, 10, 14, for by one offering, he has perfected forever. He's sanctified us. He's perfected us forever. He's perfected forever. Those who are being sanctified. Isn't that interesting? Same word, four verses later. We've having go back to 10:10. Having been we have been sanctified and then go to 10:14. Those who are being sanctified. It's this already happened but not yet. Isn't that interesting? And and this is this we call our sanctification as Christians. It's this continual process that's already happened. And so I made a little graph, and I it was funny because I was, I thought I, I thought I made this up, and then I googled it, and I was like, holy cow, other people have made this graph. There's other people in the world like me. <laughs> okay, so um, I don't remember exactly how I put these in, Jonah. Try to bring up the yes, this one. How's that come through? Good. Did you see the blue line? Okay. So x-axis, y-axis. Who's with me? <laughs> High school math class. Okay. So uh, let me, I wish I had a laser pointer right now. Um, yeah, mouse. There we go. Okay. Jonah, uh, point at the cross. So there's the cross. So this represents the moment of salvation. Okay. X-axis is time. Okay. So X-axis is a horizontal axis. And so you get saved. And the y-axis is holiness, okay? So your holiness over time. Sanctification is a rate, okay? It's holiness over time. It's physics, guys. And um, so salvation is also when you're justified. Now, I put a little star up at the top for positional sanctification. So the moment you get saved, you are uh, already positionally made right with God. There's lots of words, and I'm not a theologian, so I'm not very good at differentiating why I use the word justified or sanctified, but in my head, they're all kind of the same, like you got saved, okay? Um, but now we see, I don't know, like I kind of I kind of mapped out kind of like what I think of my, I mean, I didn't really think about it that much, I just kind of doodled, but um, definitely when I first got saved, I went through this rapid growth phase. Jonah, you are, man, we are right in this, bro. Weird. You are just getting it. So I went through this rapid growth phase. Okay. 
that's like age 18 to 22. And then we had kids, you know, and that'll slow down your sanctification, let me tell you. (laughs) And I didn't really think, I just don't want to get into the dark, dirty details any further, but... But, you know, you go through life and there's some trials and there's some dips, right? And then maybe some improvements again. Move to Prineville. Yeah. Oh, Rory started preaching about, I don't know. I'm just kidding. Okay. And, uh, and so you get, you get the ups and the downs of life and God is, is sanctifying you. And I don't know where I'm at in life right now. But, you know, hopefully it's a, it's a continual improvement, but there's ups and downs, right? And then go, go all the way to the top. I'm looking forward to this day glorification, death. Yes, Lord, please soon. Right. And then boom, you are, you are totally holy at that point. Okay. Um, so this, this is the Christian life in my, in my brain and, uh, God is continuing to work you out. Okay. There's a verse that says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And it's kind of like, you know, you are a work in progress and God is improving you. And you know, at the end, now let's not go there yet. But so then I wrote down a question. This is what it's supposed to look like, okay? I think to some degree. It's supposed to be, yeah, there's going to be some failure. But like the, the overall trajectory of this graph is like, it's getting better, right? And so God, although although there is, um, you know, although there's some some failure, it's not like God saved me and now I just continually fail and it's a flat line right? That's not the Christian life. Um, okay. So, um, so then I, then I wrote down a question as I was just thinking, what are the variables that we have some control over that affect these slopes? Okay. And so then I was like, let's bring up Y equals MX plus B and talk about this. Okay. So how many, now how many of you are with me? Yeah. Only that many? Come on. Algebra one, guys. Middle school, ninth grade. Okay, so M is slope. We're going to just throw out uh, the Y-intercept, so we'll make it even easier. Okay, so now bring up the the next one, Jonah. Okay, so I'm thinking, I just, this is going to be quick. So what are some things that you can do in your life to affect the slope of the line? Okay, so... I think when I first got saved, even really before I got saved, I started reading the New Testament, you know, and that started to have like a, an effect on maybe not my holiness, but my um, awareness of who God is, you know, and like sort of started to, and maybe, maybe I was, I don't know, you can, that's another debate, but, you know, I was starting to become open to, is there a God? Does God care about me? you know, did Jesus rise from the dead? You know, is this stuff really true? And I was reading the Bible, you know, and then let's, let's, let's affect the slope a little more. Let's make this a three X. If you actually start, once I got saved, I started actually praying. Now go back, go back to two, look at the slope on that one. Now look at the slope on this one. We're pitching up. Okay. So if you mix reading the Bible with praying, wow, that's going to that's gonna improve the slope of that line, right? And then here's where we take it to the next level. Exponential function, baby. <laughs> Jenny's like, oh yeah. Now you're speaking my language, Johnny. Okay, if you start fellowship, when I, when I got saved, I, uh, at first I was just still by myself and, you know, I was going to church and that's how I got saved. I was going to a a college, uh, ministry, but then I, then I got into a small group Bible study with other Christian men. And that's when things went exponential. You know what I'm saying? And, um, and so, you know, just wrapping it up, worship team, you can come back up. Um, do I have any more pictures? Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, like this could be you right now. Okay. You could be, you could be this person. Don't laugh at my nerdy science. You could be this person like, like who's like, man, this is my life right now, you know, or click over to the next one. You could be this person who's like, eh, you know, and I'd say all three of us or all of us are in one of three places in our walk. We're either, we're either tanking. 
we're flatlining, or we're thriving. And, you know, when, if you were to just read Romans 7, I think, take, take the nerdy pictures away. Let's get spiritual. Okay. Um, if you, if you were, if, if you were to just read Romans 7 and stop the book of Romans there, you might think, I'm a slave to sin. Someday Jesus is going to deliver me from this body of death, but for now, this is where I'm at. You know, you might think I have no control over my life. You know, I have no control. And I think this is people, people who live in complete failure, they believe this. I have no control over my life. You know, but as you read the rest of the book of Romans, as you read the New Testament, as you read Jesus and he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Because it's better to enter heaven with one hand, with one eye, than to go to hell. Like, God, God doesn't write the Bible in a way that he gives you the sense you have no control over what's happening to you. And even as Christians, stop it. Stop believing that you don't have any control over what's happening to you. You've got the Holy Spirit inside of you. You've got the word of God. You've got Christian brothers and sisters around you. You can pray. And I think Christians, a lot of times, we just, we just kind of like, oh, I tried a few things and, and I'm kind of in this, this lull right now. And it's just, I can't, there's nothing. I've tried. It's not working. It's like, stop being defeated, you know? And, and I mean, I, I've been defeated. I've been in a, I've been in a lull. And, you know, like, I think sometimes we want to, we also, we look at it some, something else. Oh, well, it's my wife. Oh, it's my kids. It's my job. You know, if you had the, if you had the environment I have to live in right now, you'd be in the same place as me. Stop it. Gouge out that eye. Cut off that hand. You have the son of God in your life. You have the spirit of Christ in your soul. Whatever, whatever stupid thing is keeping you from thriving in the Christian life, Get it out of your life. And, and I would say, are you in the word every day? Are you on your knees when you're in the word every day? Are you in deep, meaningful fellowship with other Christians? Because I think those three things, if you're doing those three things right, your graph's probably ticking upward. But if you're, if you're down in a lull, if you're kind of plateaued, I'm guessing one of those three things or all three of those things is probably just kind of in the back seat right now. And I mean, this isn't like a pull up your bootstraps and get it done thing, but at the same time, like have some discipline, people. I'm talking to myself here. Have some discipline. Get it together, right? You, you represent, you are Christians. You are little Christs. You represent Christ, Jesus Christ, the son of God. Like put that first, right? Because I think a lot of times, Christians, the way we live, people look at us and go, he's no different than anybody else. Big deal. Christianity doesn't seem to have any effect on him. And maybe it did in a season of your life, but now it's like, yeah, it's kind of worn off and I'm just kind of in this lull period. And, you know, like, guys, this is it. Jesus is coming back. This world's all screwed up, man. Let's stop chasing after the other things we're chasing after and let's make Jesus the top priority again. Let's get ourselves back into that rhythm that gets us in the right place that we're supposed to be in. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, Romans chapter seven that is so comforting to those of us in the season of sin that has gripped us. And God, I pray for victory over sin. I pray that Jesus, that you would teach us to defeat sin and overcome sin, that we would walk in the spirit and make no provision for the flesh. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, God. Let us see the sins that need to be cut off. Let us glorify you with our lives. Amen. Johnny, are looking at you like, you, me, you, me, you. <laughs> Just want to remind you guys, uh, December 8th, correct, for the women's thing. And so, uh, ladies, be ready for that. Can they sign up online for that, or do they have to sign up at all? Just show up. Just show up with hot dogs. Right? 
and presents. <laughs> Um, and then also want to remind you that this week, Rory, myself, and Russell will be heading out on Wednesday morning for Nepal. So cover your prayers for that. And just want to share with you, um, this trip feels very, very different than the previous ones we've gone on. There is a heaviness to this that we've never experienced. Um, we feel like we're walking into a storm. Um, with that being said, we're also encouraged. And I was just sharing uh, with a couple upstairs that this week the Lord's really encouraged me. Um, in Exodus, when we read of the 12 spies going into the promised land, and 10 of them come back and they go, man, the land is truly filled with milk and honey, but the walls stretch to the heavens, and we're like grasshoppers in their eyes, they say. And then here comes Caleb and Joshua, and they're like, what are you guys talking about? Man, if God is for us, we got this thing. And that's kind of how we feel. Like we feel like we're walking in to something that is so much bigger than we are. It's daunting. We feel like some oppression coming into it. We feel like this, this word that keeps being spoken is arduous. But yet we know that God is for us. And God's going to be doing a great work. And we think about looking at this opportunity. An opportunity has never been given to us like this before. We get to actually have a conference and speak to 200 to 250 Nepalis for two and a half days. We've never had that opportunity. They're going to go back from this to their communities, to their churches, and share what God is revealing to them. Sharing the gospel in ways that we've never been able to reach before. And so we look at this like, this is a new door that God has opened for us. And we're just so blessed, but we really covet your prayers for that. One of the crazy thing is, is that the tickets that we bought, they just kind of changed our flight. So when we land in Doha and then transfer to Kathmandu, we have 45 minutes to get off the plane, get on a new plane, get our bags, recheck them, get on a new plane and fly out. We're probably going to miss that flight unless you guys pray. <laughs> no, no, just kidding. So we cover your prayers for that little 45 minutes. Maybe we get there a little bit earlier. We can get that transition, get on that flight. And we can get over there. And also, Shannon Newell is coming back on the same day on, um, on Wednesday from two months being in Africa. And so um, we're going to be praying for her safe return. We, we think we have the opportunity to cross paths in San Francisco Airport. She'll be landing and we'll be there. We're hoping to be able to catch some time with her while we're in San Francisco. And uh, so we cover your prayers for that as well. Um, thank you guys so much. Please stay for the Donut Festival. And uh, God, God bless you guys.